they kind of opened the door to this kingdom. Diamond dust in the air from the recent snow. Gringa tranquila, no tenemos avalanchas en Chile. Maybe someone had a shovel, maybe someone had a beacon. People didn't have any gear. Like teleporting would be cool. Welcome to episode 2.14 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond Peeps, Live, Ski, Repeat, and 10 Barrel Brewing, here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's raining at home right now. It's that time of year with warmer temperatures, changing forms of precipitation, and multi-sport days. Time for me to gain some elevation and eke out some spring storm skiing. The avalanche problem certainly hasn't gone to bed in many places, and there were unfortunately two fatalities in Colorado this past week. Our thoughts go out to the friends and families of the involved parties. Stay sharp out there as warmer weather higher sun angles with longer days and rain on snow events can certainly bring rapid changes to the snowpack, which is still riddled with persistent weak layers and crusts in many areas. Even though your regional forecast centers may be closing up shop in the coming weeks, it doesn't mean the avalanche danger won't continue to exist. Do your homework, monitor freezing levels and nighttime temperatures, Get early starts and finish riding in time for that backyard barbecue, a session at the crag, or a mountain bike ride. We'll be heading south for this episode, way south. We might even have to hop a wall or two. We have two interviews to showcase today, one with Sean Zimmerman-Wall and the other with Alex Tarrin. Both of these avalanche professionals started out their careers as ski patrollers at Snowbird and one way or another found their way to South America to extend their ski seasons. Sean starts out talking about how his career got a start and has progressed to involve international guiding and education work. Sean has been very involved with ARI and the American Avalanche Association and was recently elected to the AAA board as the at-large pro trustee. Congrats on that, Sean. You can find many articles written by him in publications such as the Avalanche Review and a Scent Backcountry Journal. Without further ado, dropping in with Sean Z. Dub. Welcome, Sean, to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Sean's a uh, multifaceted man. He's a ski patroller at Snowbird. He's a backcountry ski guide. He owns a part owner in a business in South America. 
Um, he's also an avalanche educator as well as a father and a husband. Yeah, the list goes on, but that's uh, those are my core duties for right now, and I'm enjoying all of them. Yeah, it seems like quite the balancing act. Um, we're excited to hear a little bit more about some of the things you do. Could you just give us a, a brief history of, of your roles within the Avalanche community, Sean? Absolutely. Uh, the way it's grown has been a bit organic. I started out working at Snowbird in 2005 on the summer activities crew and was offered a job as a lifty. seemed like a good college job. I had moved out here from Tennessee then. I was going to school at the University of Utah and uh, never really saw myself as an avalanche professional in 10 years, but that's what's happened. That that lineage looked like working as a, a mountain employee on the chairlifts while I went to school. Got my marketing degree and tourism minor, so I felt like maybe staying in the in the snow world was pertinent, and I could leverage some of those strengths I learned in my uh, academic academic world and bring that in. Um, I moved up to the ski patrol in 2009. I was a ski patroller. Um, I still am a ski patroller, and I have been since then. Uh, full-time and opportunities have been um, given to me and I'm thankful for each one of them. Uh, one with the ability to join the ski patrol, learn from them, Snowbird Ski Patrol, uh, along with the Alta Ski Patrol, the Utah Department of Transportation. There's a lot of history in this canyon uh, and Little Cottonwood is, I see as like a hub at least of the Mountain West and at one point or another it was for the whole Western Hemisphere. Um, so to kind of maybe carry on that tradition is something I'd be really stoked to do. So becoming a guide was the next step um, and working in a bigger environment. Um, that started with uh, going down to the Southern Hemisphere and chasing snow. I did that for a winter in New Zealand in 2008-9, right when I became a ski patroller. It kind of opened my eyes to more snowpacks. Uh, later on, I met a really good a uh, colleague at the Powderbird Guides, a guy named Justin Lozier, he had started uh, a very small guide service he called Patagonia Ski Tours from uh, chasing his at-the-time girlfriend, soon to become wife, down to the Southern Hemisphere to ski. We became friends. I joined him and went down there. and We were able to, uh, me and my friend that I had been traveling with, Ben, we were able to go to Justin and Kata's wedding. And like that was my introduction to Argentina, and it was awesome. Uh, two-week party for the wedding, and then we went and explored Patagonia for three weeks. And I just opened my eyes like, hey, this place is amazing. Justin offered me the opportunity to work with him to help him grow his business, saw my skill set. Um, and we kind of started off down that road, and it and it morphed into many things, and that's an ongoing project. Uh, coinciding with that, I started becoming a guide here in the Wasatch um, in 2011 with um, Snowbird and their Snowcat skiing program. At the time, it was called Snowcat Skiing for Nature. That developed into what is now Snowbird Backcountry Guides. So instead of just offering snowcat skiing, we do offer uh, alpine touring um, for split borders and skiers, and we also offer avalanche education. The impetus there was to carry on the tradition of avalanche education in this canyon um, and do it in a thoughtful way. I'd been an area instructor. Um, for another entity here in the Wasatch called White Pine Touring for a couple seasons. And I saw the opportunity for us to um, bring in ARI and partner with them so that we would be a provider of their curriculum. And uh, 
And that's led me to today to meet you as another instructor at an IRC here at the Peruvian Lodge in Alta to uh, kind of carry that on moving forward. Right. So, and, and now I understand you're part owner of Patagonia Ski Tours. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. In 2011 was the first season down there. And 2012, I uh, started really showing my interest to Justin and, and it's just me and him. His wife is our logistics superhero. She's Argentine. She really helps keep the wheels on the bus, but it was a little cowboy. We were down there working with other guides locally, exploring the area. Um, I don't think we were getting in over our heads, but we were definitely like, wow, this place is huge. What, what can we do? Let's go find places that nobody else goes, figure out a way to make this work. Um, in 2015, I became an official owner. Um, it was kind of always in good faith with Justin that we had built this company together on top of what he had already created with the help of his wife. Um, and so the three of us are business partners, uh, in that business. And as we've grown that out, it encompasses resort skiing in Patagonia in the lakes region of Argentina, um, outside of San Carlos de Bariloche. That's our main region. Um, but anywhere within about a, uh, 500 kilometers north or south of there, we go, whether it be ski areas, ski area access, backcountry, huts, mountain, uh, lodges, domos. They've got a great like dome system now, instead of using a yurt, they use a dome. And, uh, and now that's even morphed, uh, with Justin starting to create Patagonia Heli Ski and what I can do to, to help him with that. I will down the road as a separate business, but it's been a, a research project through and through and. I've learned the language. I went down there with very rudimentary Spanish from high school, but uh, I had an affinity for the language. Going down there for the wedding was super fun, getting to interact with all of his wife's family and learn the language, Castellano, which is the dialect that the Argentines speak of Spanish. It's a little different than just Spanish south of the border here. And so, you know, when I got there, I was a little bit more like, hola, me llamo Sean, and now it's like, you know, me, you know, hablo es Sean. Soy un guía de la montaña y estoy fluido más o menos para negocios está bien. But, you know, it just depends on what we're doing and where I need to leverage that strength. Um, it's, it's a learning environment uh, all the time trying to conduct business in another country. But to do it in Argentina has been a big challenge um, for a number of reasons, but I've welcomed that and it's been a lot of fun. Right. So you've had a lot of experience in, the, in a variety of different snowpacks. Um, could you just highlight a little bit of what the snowpack is like down south and, and some of the terrain that you guys operate in? Yeah, so coming from an intermountain pack here um, to go down to pretty much a, a maritime pack um, where you're dealing with, you know, not an overly deep snowpack like you might find in the Pacific Northwest, but um, a higher density snow. The wind lives in Patagonia, and that's what we deal with a lot of problems with, you know, wind slabs. Um, you're not dealing with the persistent weak layers. So kind of adapting our guiding style. We also started teaching some avalanche courses down there with the South American Beacon Project, uh, started by Alex Turan. And we were kind of like her central, central Argentina, northern Patagonia, like um, providers where we donate avalanche beacons and uh, education to mountain workers, whether it be a ski patrol or a, a mountain club or something like that. And so... By teaching in that snowpack, we learned a lot more by guiding in it even more so. And uh, it doesn't have the same problems, but it does have different problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, working around that um, has been fun. So the 
the maritime snowpack, that's been my, my primary time in maritime snowpacks is Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about education. So uh, you're a ARI course leader, correct? Yes. Yeah. So um, how have you seen education progress both in Little Cottonwood since you've been here and what you guys are doing down south? Sure, I've seen it as a as a as a fluid thing moving in a in a positive trajectory. Uh, I took my level one here, um, up in Grizzly Gulch, and it was an eye opening experience when I was still a lifty, and it kind of opened the door to this kingdom. And uh, I'm grateful for those mentors and those instructors to share that key with me to, as you put it, kind of go through this door and move it into uh, kind of the next steps. Little Cottonwood has been an epicenter for the study of avalanches for a very long time and formal avalanche education at the out avalanche school back in the day was very, very prestigious in the days of like Monty Atwater and Ed LaChapelle. Um, and then it kind of hit, um, a little spot where it maybe wasn't as well known for education, certainly mitigation, managing a complex, uh, environment where you have a highway, multiple ski areas, a town, um, but education started, it seemed like, to develop kind of outside of this canyon in a more organized fashion. So I became familiar with um, the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education, ARI, um, through another provider on the other side of the Wasatch, through White Pine Touring. They gave me an opportunity to start uh, shadowing courses. Um, then I was able to take instructor training courses, um, both here and then ARI started coming up to Snowbird and seeing that as a venue for instructor training. So I was able to kind of come back to my home a little bit. Um, that also happened at the same time that I was getting involved with the South American Beacon Project, started by Alex, who was a former patroller. And uh, so to have the opportunity to partner with something that I felt passionate about, which was teaching people and apply it while I was going down to work in another place, seemed like a good fit. So I just try to let those kinds of things drive where I go and my interests rather than um, my desires per se. Um, cause that's kind of an ongoing evolution. Like I said a little bit ago, I don't, didn't see myself as an avalanche professional when I moved here in 2005. Hmm. Yeah. And you're, you're one of a few Tennessee, uh, originated avalanche professionals in our, yeah, in our growing community. up skiing in the Southeast. Not too many people have done it, but, uh, there are some, some notable people in the avalanche game that, uh, are from that area. And, um, so it, it's cool to be one of the few, but, um, yeah, it's not, a common place to come from, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice merit badge there coming from Tennessee. <laughs> nice. Sean, it seems like you, you've done a great job documenting and sharing the information of the ongoing evolution of the pro-rec split in the Avalanche Review. I always really uh, appreciated your explanation of each step that was happening from the inception of a, of a meeting that happened in this canyon, what, in 2013? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Really good job with that. Thanks. Really appreciated that. Absolutely. Um, Sean, what do you what do you see the biggest issue facing our avalanche community today? What do you think that is? I think there's um, kind of one word that could sum it up, and that would be collaboration and the need for more of it. Um, I think that we've done a stellar job of bringing people to the table with uh, on the recreation and professional side of things trying to make this new um, continuum happen the pro rec split as it's kind of unofficially known 
um, and all the different players at that. I mean, I was given an opportunity to sit down and, and witness that and work with the AAA, the American Avalanche Association, moving that. And the level of collaboration was um, eye-opening at first. I was amazed that it seemed like everybody was pretty much on board with this. But as the details came out, it became known that this is actually a little bit harder than I think we thought. And so I wouldn't say it's it's a, a, a big problem at all. Like you said, it's a challenge facing the industry. And how do we collaborate on a better level? How do we put aside some of our like sticking points and look at um, how to put this puzzle together? We we don't have a picture of what this puzzle fully looks like. So we're we're kind of just trying to fit the pieces together by looking at the individual pieces. Not we don't have the picture to look at necessarily. We have ideas of what that picture should be and we have – ideas of how that picture can change over time. So collaborating between all the different stakeholders, that's the big thing too. Here in the United States, we have a lot of stakeholders. We have um, the National Ski Area Association who um, assist with the way ski areas hire patrols perhaps. Like patrols have one skill set that they need to be really good at and their level of education needs to be such. Then we have the guiding industry and that's a huge, a huge evolving animal. Um, and then we have just avalanche education for recreational users. Um, but we also have land managers. We have the Forest Service to work with. We have um, you know, other entities like the National Ski Patrol. Um, there's all these different players. And then you start talking about like the subsets of the profession like UDOTs or you know, not UDOTs but uh, Departments of Transportation and how they want to educate their workforce. And so this you got the rec side and you got the pro side and there is some overlap, but trying to make it uh, maybe a little bit more similar to like our neighbors to the north with Canada having a, a, a clear division that they were able to start their their whole progression with. And we're, we're doing a little bit of reverse engineering to try and create a, a safer environment um, for our workers on the pro side and a safer backcountry for the recreationists. Sure. And I think, I think it's important to remember that nobody's an island here, right? Yeah. And I think... You know, going back to my ski patrol, snow safety experience at Solitude, um, I always thought that all the resorts within the Cottonwoods did a really good job of sharing information. And, and I like your your use of the word collaboration. Um, I was hoping you could expand a little bit upon that collaboration within Little Cottonwood because I think it's pretty unique. Um, there's a lot of entities here, as you've said, um, that are all faced with the challenge of providing recreation, a safe workplace, um, and commerce for this area. And so you have Alta, you have Snowbird, you have UDOT, you have a heli-ski operation, you have various other human-powered ski guiding operations. Um, what are some ways that you guys all tend to work together? What are some strategies there that you see? I think the strategies are evolving, and I think we could actually learn a lot by kind of researching our heritage. Um, Monty Atwater, when he was here as a snow ranger for the Forest Service, but also employed for Alta, trying to keep the ski area safe, and then utilizing his knowledge of artillery to bring that, to collaborate with the the Army or the National Guard to get the howitzers up here so they could control the road, which was managed by the highway department. So that level of collaboration has been integral in this canyon since people started skiing here in 1930, and since the area opened in 1938. And... It was interesting that at that time, that was like the departure that the National Forest Service had was 
Their rangers, they didn't fish with the fishermen, they didn't hike with the hikers, but the snow rangers skied with the skiers. And that's what Monty did. He came here and he figured out a way to make it work. So I think we could all, you know, take a page out of um, his book, The Avalanche Hunters, and look at that level of collaboration and then bring that to the present day, which it exists on a super high level. And I think that's why the success has been. It's just been a cultural thing here since the beginning. So I think we can reinvigorate that to a degree, but we do, as you mentioned, have a complex issue to deal with. And our level of teamwork and collaboration amongst the entities you mentioned is amazing. Um, and sometimes you just kind of sit there and be like, wow, look at what's happening right now. Just listen. You close your eyes and listen to it. And then to open your eyes again and uh, be part of that visceral experience of, you know, on a clear, cold day, UDOT is shooting the howitzer from the ridge gun behind us onto Superior. There's a helicopter flying around, um, Alta and Snowbird dropping explosives while there are teams in another area dropping off hand charges. And they are incrementally moving snowplows up and down the canyon to try and clear the road so that everybody can come up here and, you know, get after it. Uh, on their skis or snowboards um, or whatever conveyance they may they may choose these days it's like a well-conducted symphony it is it is amazing and uh yeah i'm I'm never cease to be amazed by it (laughs) sean do you have any watershed moments within your career some aha moments as i like to call them where things just really started to click for you as a patroller or guide or or educator um or any any stories of close calls that you'd like to recount for our listeners wow um i haven't had a chance to really think back on that prior to this moment um other than yesterday when i was sitting in uh the utah snow and avalanche workshop um one of the men that i was fortunate enough to have mentor me a little bit was liam fitzgerald he stood up and he he addressed the crowd um talking about giving advice to his younger self liam's uh background is extensive and could fill a whole season of your shows and maybe one day it could Um, but Liam and I worked together um, very minimally at Snowbird but he was the foreman of the highway up here for um, avalanche control for UDOT Um, and I was able to work alongside him and many others and one day in an interview I uh, was conducting with him for a magazine that I wrote for he said something profound to me and that was maintain the ability to be surprised as um, an avalanche professional, that carried a lot of weight. And it it was a bit of an aha moment. And I, I take it also into my personal life um, with my family, with having a two-year-old. Maintain the ability to be surprised was just a very simple way to put it. Um, but kind of working with him, with, with some of the other uh, folks like Jimmy Collinson, Randy Trover, Peter Shorey, a.k.a. Mongo, um, these guys that have been in this canyon for so long and have made it their identity um, and they've been up the canyon, they, they understand what happens up here and um, being able to just kind of be their mentee, like they're my mentors and I'm able to, to learn from what they've accomplished and, and maybe pick up some small nuggets of information here and there to keep myself safer, look for new opportunities where they didn't exist before. Um, but yeah, I think... It was maybe a collection of, of moments, but it was working alongside those those folks, the Collinsons, the Fitzgeralds, etc. Yeah, it's pretty key to have mentors in this in this industry, and and they're all around us really, and they're many many of them are very willing to take somebody under their wing. Um, 
it's pretty pretty awesome part of this community. Absolutely. So within the Wasatch, it's a very busy area, as we know. Um, there's lots of ski tours. There's lots of people getting out in the backcountry, lots of resort users as well. Um, something I'm kind of fascinated with is is trying to break down this culture of shame that sometimes happens after a close call or an accident. You know, um, I think the every forecast, every avalanche forecast center does a really good job of just providing the facts in an accident report. Um, but then we have you know forums on TGR, any other forums, and 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 inevitably there's lots of folks that come out with comments. Um, trying to kind of Monday morning quarterback the actions of, of those who maybe nearly missed or unfortunately died of an avalanche from an avalanche. Um, what are some ways that you see could help the community into shifting that culture of shame into a, a culture of learning? That's a good question. Um, I think that culture has two parts it has a professional side and it has a recreation side and so partly it can be addressed through education Um, when you take a level one course address that this may be people's first exposure to what avalanche terrain looks like and actually looking at those places you mentioned where those comments could you know present themselves so reaching those people who are coming into it for the first time we have to maybe start with some of them on the rec side on the pro side, I think that exists to a degree too. And maybe it's not shaming so much as um, being like, well, I don't want people to see me as any less of a professional or I don't want to get chewed out by my supervisor. And there's been an incredible resource just brought in, I think, uh, by Scott Savage and uh, and a few others. Um, and I apologize for forgetting who else was involved. Um, maybe Brian Lazar. I think Ethan Green, Ethan Green, and, and excuse Bill me, Williamson. Yeah, so um, those folks with the um, AvalancheNearMiss.org database, like that's an incredible way to bring that to the forefront in the professional world. So if we're kind of tackling it from both sides, then maybe we can also reach out to somebody who falls into the middle ground, who is uh, an ambassador for um, a company or a professional athlete, to try and also kind of drive home that message of like, hey, I'm putting my hand up. I've made those mistakes. And here's what happened, and I'm willing to talk about it. I was lucky enough to survive, um, and I want to share this experience with you because it it's okay if you mess up. Like, it's fine. And I think in the guide world, too, that's a big thing, um, not just in the recreational world. In the guide world, to admit your mistakes um, and, and, and drop your ego to the side. And, and uh, I, I see that changing, and it's a cultural thing that's been a shift um, and I think it comes with more education too. And so they, they kind of, they're parallel tracks um, going towards one goal, mm-hmm. um, but just happening maybe independently of each other. And maybe there will be a confluence down the road um, to where it's a little bit more clean cut. And it's just, if you're in the mountains, it's okay to make mistakes, regardless of whether you're out for your first ski tour or your hundredth ski tour as a recreational user, or whether you just guided your 10th season in a in a major range mm-hmm. um, own it have ownership of, of your mistakes talk to your mentors about it talk to your friends about it and yeah the internet provides a, a faceless medium for people to berate others and it goes beyond just the snow world as we all know and you know um, nobody's immune to it but we can try to shift the cultural of it cultural side of it 
So Sean, can you uh, recount for us maybe your best day or, or one a very memorable day of ski patrolling at Snowbird? What was that like? Sure, I can remember it pretty vividly. Um, I was a fourth-year lift operator, and I finally was able to get on and go shadow a route, which a uh, mitigation route at a ski resort is a team of two or more patrollers going out along a predefined route with targets um, in avalanche starting zones to try and initiate avalanches and get an assessment of conditions prior to opening. Um, so I followed, uh, I followed two patrollers, Tina Biddle, who's our, now our current uh, ski patrol director, kudos to her for attaining that, and Rick Gates, one of our longest running ski patrollers. Um, and we went out on my favorite route at Snowbird, which is called MB0. It follows along a knife-edge ridge and mineral basin with a lot of north-facing terrain across a huge bookcase cliff. Uh, to even get to that cliff where there's a lot of exposure, you're exposed to major runout zones, and you're going in underneath the work that an avalancher has already done. And at one point, you're out in space in Powder Paradise in this massive bowl that faces kind of uh, east-northeast with a ton of exposure above and a long run out below, and you you tiptoe through there. Even though it's been controlled, you still have that moment, and like I'm... Um, I'm pretty green. I'm not a patroller at this point. I'm wanting to become a patroller, and and maybe this is a way that I thought like, hey, if I can prove myself to these guys, I'm, you know, they already know who I was, but maybe this will seal the deal, and I can join the ski patrol next year. Um, and then getting out into to the bookends area of Mineral Basin, you get to Sunday Saddle, and you're looking into the far drainage into American Fork, Mary Ellen Gulch. You're looking across all of Mineral Basin. You're looking into Alta. And you just have this incredible 360-degree view from this ridgeline perch. And there was like this diamond dust in the air from the recent snowfall. Maybe snowed like 16 inches and it was light precipitation in the air but a lot of sun. Um, you have a, a huge vantage to the east. You can see the Uintas. And I was just like standing up there and there's a cliff below me. And, you know, Tina uh, says that she wants to shoot this target. So Rick and I kind of back off the ridge. She puts a shot on a on a piece of bamboo and uh, shakes up this cliff band and these cornices fall and it's just this like eruption of sound in this amphitheater very visceral experience and I was like whoa kind of all hit me there and I was like this is like the perfect combination of a variety of skill sets and the opportunity to just be out in this medium with a very small group of people that you trust incredibly and I I saw that team dynamic between Rick and Tina as we moved on and they included me in it even though they didn't know me very well. Um, I wasn't a full-fledged patroller. I wasn't even a trail crew member yet. Um, and they gave me some pointers, and they told me how to move around terrain, and I just appreciated that team dynamic they had, and I wanted to be part of that. And uh, and, and so I applied, and, and, and here I am now. That's awesome. Yeah, it made the hair on my neck stand up a little bit. <laughs> Those moments are pretty awesome. They are. Well, uh, Sean, thanks for sitting down and, and chatting with me this evening. Uh, any, do you guys have a website for your operation, Patagonia? Yeah, it's PatagoniaSkiTours.com. Okay. That's, uh, that's us. It's been us since the beginning, and you can find our trips on there. And if you're interested in uh, coming and taking an avalanche course at Snowbird with Snowbird Backcountry Guides, we offer that, uh, Snowbird Guides at Gmail. You can shoot us a message, check out uh, Snowbird's website. Um, come up here and ski with us and you know 
if if you're interested in becoming a professional down the road, don't hesitate to go to your local ski patrol and ask to shadow. If you're here in the Wasatch and you you have some time to come by and you want to shadow with the Snowbird Ski Patrol, come on into Hidden Peak. Ask to talk to Tina. <laughs> awesome. Well, cheers, man. Thank you very much. Sweet. Salud. Thanks, Sean. Check out www.patagoniaskitours.com to find out how to get your POW fixed this summer. Just as Sean mentioned, this will be the first year of Patagonia Heli Ski as well. So make sure to cruise to their website, www.patagoniaheliski.com, to see about how you can head down south to nab first descents within their 1 million acre tenure. Let's cruise on into our second interview of the show with Alex Terran. Alex has had a diverse and extensive career in the snow and avalanche world starting at a young age, not to mention her professional free skiing competitive career. She's had stories published about her in many publications such as Backcountry and Powder magazines. Her work in establishing and building the South American Beacon Project speaks for itself to her commitment towards avalanche education and worker safety. Here you have it, our interview with Alex. All right, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for uh, for asking me to come out here. Yeah, so we're doing, uh, this is the first Avalanche Hour podcast done out of the mobile studio, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Alex, I got Alex Turan here. And I was hoping you could just introduce yourself and give us your background in the avalanche world. Okay. Um, hi, guys. I'm... Well, this is not a class, huh? I feel like I'm, like, <laughs> speaking at something. Um, um, I'm Alex Taran. I have worked uh, 18 seasons uh, in avalanche-related work, um, ski patrolling, some ski guiding, uh, avalanche forecasting, and uh, teaching different avalanche classes, uh, and directing a project in South America called the South American Beacon Project, which is an avalanche education outreach project. So, yeah. So where where did you kind of start cutting your teeth in the avalanche world, Alex? Um, I started patrolling at Snowbird when I was 19 years old, um, I guess something around there, and uh, yeah, that's that's where I started. Um, from Snowbird, I guess, uh, just Little Cottonwood is a pretty incredible place to um, learn about avalanches. It's got an extremely rich history, which I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with, but uh, the birth pit place of artillery used to control avalanches and it was a great opportunity to learn about avalanche um avalanches there you know while while doing control work at snowbird um which is a snowbird patrol was a pretty cool organization to be a part of so yeah quite a depth of knowledge there i'm sure um and you, and you did some forecasting for highway departments too right 
Yeah, uh, I spent two years out um, with um, the Idaho Transportation Department out in Loman, um, working out there. And uh, that was an incredibly great experience. Learned a lot out there and got to be around a really solid crew. So that was awesome, too. Nice. Well, today we're going to talk mostly about your work down in South America with the South American Beacon Project. I was hoping you could tell us um, how you started getting involved with that and and what that project's all about. Totally. Um, so, well, uh, like a lot of people who've moved to other countries, uh, I moved to Chile at the ripe age of 21 because I was dating a Chileno. And so I looked for my first job down there, which was patrolling at La Parva. Um, and that, I mean, that mountain's great. Those guys are still like family. And uh, anyways, patrolling down there, it was 2000 and what year was it? Seven? 2008. It was 2008. And um, yeah, patrolling with those guys, um, incredible crew, Chilean people are some of like the most warm, warm loving people you'll ever meet. Um, and so I, you know, there was a lot of ties to the patrol in that way. And then seeing that when I worked down there, the patrol at the time had four beacons for 18 patrollers. Wow. And that coming from a patrolling background in Little Cottonwood was kind of shocking because obviously, you know, in, in the States and especially in Little Cottonwood, avalanches are taken very seriously and so to come down and have four beacons for 18 people was a bit of a shocker um so the next year after i was patrolling down there i i was down and i was competing in some um free skiing world tour event and we were there's a run down there called santa teresita which has seen some avalanche and trauma related deaths in the past and so we were skiing the venue because that was the venue for the uh, event and we were hitchhiking back and we were sitting in the back of a pickup truck me and a few other folks and we were talking and um just just about the lack of beacons in general that year 2008 when i was down there patrolling um also saw more snow than they'd seen in a very long time and with that there was an avalanche uh, on that slope, that same slope from the competition, Santa Teresita, which had slid and closed the access to Valle Nevado for several days. That first season down there, 2008, aside from having four beacons for 18 people, which now is not the case. Those guys fully have beacon um, equipment. Robinson, who's in charge of patrol. Excellent. Um, but also, uh, aside from that, aside from the avalanche which closed the access to Valle Nevado for several days uh I was going out with my ex-boyfriend at the time a bunch of his friends on a tour to go ski um Santa Teresita and there it had snowed about 50 centimeters and we got out there and you know Chileans are so friendly and so warm they invited all their friends along and so by the time we actually traversed all the way to the top of the run we were going to ski from La Parva, the ski area where we were from, coming from, um, there were now 10 of us. 
And out of that 10 of us, only the original four had beacon, shovel, and probe. Um, the rest, you know, maybe someone had a shovel, maybe someone had a beacon. People didn't have any gear. And and one of the guys in the group turned to me and he said, Gringa, tranquila, no tenemos avalanchas in Chile. Which means, like, gringa, relax. We don't, we don't have avalanches in Chile. Which, you know, later that season, not only did that same slide path close the road for several days, but there was another incident, incident where um, someone died in an avalanche in that same slide path. And so um, it just made it really clear that there's not only a lack of equipment, but, but a lack of knowledge. And it's not for any malintent. It's just the season's short. Those guys didn't have the access to it. Um, and especially, you know, going back to the patrollers, the workers don't have the access to it. Um, because a lot of times, unlike, you know, in the States, you have patrollers from all different backgrounds, but it's not uncommon to see a patroller with an engineering degree who's decided that, you know, actually, I really appreciate the lifestyle of ski patrolling, and I think I'd rather work in this. Well, in Chile, maybe there's a couple of those, but for the most part, most people who are patrollers... Uh, a lot of them are farmers, or they're miners in the summer. They're a bit lower class, and the country uh, can be classist at times. So. Um, yeah. Is there is there avalanche control work that mitigation work that goes on at the ski areas and the highways there? Yeah, I mean there definitely is uh, highways. Um, maybe. I mean, I couldn't be certain. Maybe the highway going up to Portillo. Those guys would know more about it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really work with those guys that much because um, Frank is in charge, and I think I can't speak much, but I'm pretty sure they run a really solid program. So Yeah, but, <laughs> but how about within the ski areas, like these folks that you're talking about that didn't oh, have the yeah. gear? I mean, they're doing avalanche control work? Yeah, they're doing a avalanche control work. It's It was pretty minimal, uh -huh. to be quite honest. I mean, it's a maritime snowpack out there. So, as in a typical maritime snowpack, you know, it gets it gets stable um, quickly after a storm. You don't really see persistent weak layers. Uh, if I was to say, like, a pattern of avalanche-related deaths in South America, at least in Chile, central Chile, I would say uh, that you have this storm for days, and then the day after the storm, you can typically see high winds uh, or moderate winds that transport snow, create slab, and then... Most of the avalanche-related deaths I've seen um, have been due to these wind slabs, and it might be an absolutely bluebird day mm -hmm. uh, the day after a storm, but because of these wind slabs. So you get down there and you see that there's this this lack of maybe education and yeah. equipment. Yeah. And so, what compelled you to start the Beacon Project? Oh yeah. So I'm sorry. So I'm going to go it's back fine. around. So we're scouting the terrain for this free skiing contest, which happens to be in the same terrain, Santa Teresita, where um, the high, the road was closed for several days before uh, in the season before due to avalanches. And there was an avalanche related death in the season before. And we get to the bottom, we're hitchhiking back. We're in the back of the truck. And I turn to some of the other competitors and we're talking about it and kind of talking about the problem in general. And um, much like your podcast, you know, it's, it was just a, well, these resources don't really exist 
uh, if they do, they're not exactly accessible to the folks that need them, Mm -hmm. AKA the rescuers, you know, um, a lot of these people who are performing and are expected to perform the rescues don't have the tools or the training to rescue people who might have the money for these tools and training. I mean, often the, the, the patrons of ski areas are a lot more well-funded than the people working there. So it just saw a real lack and kind of from there just ruminated on it for a year. And then, uh, our first year was 2011 and we worked with, I believe five organizations that year in total, it's been a lot of years and they blend together, but in total, we've worked with over 20 communities, uh, in Chile and Argentina, um, from some of the areas near Santiago all the way down to, I mean, to Southern Patagonia, Rio Turbio, Argentina. I want to say we've given away over 300 beacons. Wow. Yeah. So you come back to the States and you had kind of a beacon roundup, I would imagine, right? <laughs> like you're, you're just trying to find beacons to take back down to South America. Yeah. So, I mean, this project primarily works due to beacon donation. Um, we get individuals that donate beacons, which is extremely helpful. Um, we also get organizations that donate beacons. So a lot of ski patrols that are switching over their fleet, uh, some, uh, municipal entities, which is a little more complicated because it's, it's kind of hard to donate it with the bureaucracy and whatnot, but a lot from there. Yeah. Just from those guys. And then we take all the beacons, we test them for their distance and search and send, and we test them as well for frequency drift, uh, every single beacon. Um, some beacons specifically have testing pro- protocol from their uh, manufacturer, and when they do, we will use those testing protocol. So, like, for example, BCA has a testing protocol you could see right on its website. And so we'll follow that testing protocol to decide whether we're going to pass or fail a beacon. Depending on the year, um, either 40 to 60% of the beacons will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important that we make sure we adequately test those before we give them to folks. Um, and right now our big drive, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but, um, so in 2011, it wouldn't be uncommon to have a donated beacon. That's an analog beacon. And that wouldn't be, um, that out of place. But now with the technology changing, um, analog beacons, while I'm sure there's somebody somewhere that still swears by their F1, um, (laughs) It's, it's a little more obsolete as far as technology goes. So we have a, we're having a big drive right now to get digital donations so that we can test them and replace analog beacons we've passed out in the past. Uh, it's really important for us to be able to make sure that those guys who are performing the rescues, not only of public, but also of themselves, have the right tools to do it with. Right. Yeah. So along with these beacon donations and, and getting the folks some gear down there, what sort of stuff do you do with education? Yeah. Um, so every single group who we donate beacons to, and these groups are rescue organizations. Um, so we've trained with uh, police officers. We've trained with emergency road workers. We've trained with 
a lot of patrolling groups. We've trained with uh, government-sponsored volunteer alpine rescue groups um, all over both of the countries. And so for every group that we donate a beacon to, uh, they're required to take a six-hour basic beacon training clinic with us. Um, It's basically you know, an introduction to partner rescue training, teaching them how to use the gear. Um, Cause it's really important that when we pass out these gear, that those guys also have a knowledge um, about it. And then we also do a lot of um, public outreach presentations, just kind of like um, avalanche awareness presentations that you'll have a lot of avalanche centers or different organizations putting on in the States. Mm-hmm. So similar You know, the town bar lets us have a space, turns off the music. We get a projector, you know, anywhere from 40 to 100 people from the town usually attend. And we'll talk about some basic awareness. You know, what information do you need? What tools do you need? Uh, What are the dangers of avalanches? And uh, really emphasizing that people should go out and get further education, which... um, in the past seven years of operation, we've just seen um, a, a, a dramatic increase in the availability of these resources. Um, a lot of ARI courses down there now. Um, in in the past, there were some some ANENA courses, which is a French course, um, some AST courses, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. So do you have South American counterparts down there that are helping drive this project now? I mean, I know you're not spending quite as much time down there as you used to. Um, so, so how does that work? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the past I had a regional director for each region. Um, and it's, I divided the area into a central Chile, a volcanoes district, Chile, and then a Patagonia, both Chile and Argentina, and then kind of a central Argentina region. It's hard. This I, I don't want this to sound bad, but like it's it's really hard to ask somebody to volunteer their time in like a full time position year after year after year after year. I mean, usually we'll get someone who's enthusiastic for a year or two, and they help us organize, uh, and then they kind of, you know, move on with their life in some sure. way. They either go deeper into, you know, guiding and they don't have time or they go decide that maybe ski industry isn't going to support them the way they want because it's a short season in Chile and they go back to school or do whatever. Um, So it's a little bit hard. I think for the most part, every time we do a class, we have a liaison with the community that we're working with. So each class is kind of different. Sometimes we'll have, um, you know, someone from the community contact me. For example, we did a Um, We gave some beacons to the Patrulla de Ski Chile in um, a small ski area called Fraile near Coyhaique in Patagonia. And one of their patrollers, um, awesome guy, contacted us uh, and asked us for a class. And so he was kind of our liaison to organize everything with the community down there. Um, Sometimes if I want to go to an area, I'll just contact someone who's either been one of our regional directors in the area or um you know it's a small community so Mm -hmm. patrollers in one area no patrollers in another or um you know alpine rescue socorro andino in one area might know socorro andino in another and so it's 
it's a kind of a small world in that sense. Yeah, I can imagine there's quite a bit of a networking that goes on. Um, sounds like a, an amazing project, and you're doing really great work. So thanks for doing all that. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about how people could get in touch with yeah. you to donate beacons because it sounds like mm-hmm. you guys are in kind of a transition process and trying to get some updated equipment down there. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, this entire project is entirely volunteer run. So, I mean, for those of you who are avalanche workers who are down in Chile working, uh, would like to help teach a class, your Spanish is moderate to good. Um, <laughs> you know, always, always looking for help with these classes. Uh, Really, the beacon donation is huge. I mean, that's what makes the project run. So um, we have a website, SouthAmericanBeaconProject.com. Um, our address is on the website, it, but it's a it's an address in Salt Lake. You can send beacons to 3434 East, 7800 South. Make sure to put number 263 on it. Otherwise, we won't get it. Um, and that's Cottonwood Heights or Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. Um yeah. Any any parameters on these beacons? Um, unfortunately, at this time, we're not accepting analog beacons anymore. Um, we've gotten some pretty cool relics <laughs> over the years. Uh, definitely no earpieces. Sorry, guys. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, if it if it's got like a a little hand like you would have on your clock and a voltage meter, yeah, like we probably don't want any of those skaties. Love the red color. We're not accepting those anymore. No, for the most part, digital um, working. If there's something wrong with them, what uh, it has to be something minor, like maybe the the gate of the door is broken. Something we could fix. We're not going in and fixing electronic problems. We're not refurbing beacons unless it's something like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of something we corrosive connections you mm-hmm. know we'll change those out but for the most part um they're used but fully functioning beacons right digitals <laughs> um do you want do you want to give a shout out to any any big sponsors of the project um oh um well for, you know we've had a lot of people help us over the years um here we go well um you know thanks to every single resort ski area in chile who works with us in Argentina, uh, Diego with Aprendica, he's um, doing a bunch of airy courses down there. He's been a big support. Uh, Patagonia Ski Tours, Sean, has been a great help. Him and Justin organizing classes on the Argentina, Argentina side mm-hmm. and doing them down there. Every single person who's helped us organize classes. I mean, Rowan Patagonia, I can go on. <laughs> yeah. There's, sure, there's so many people involved in this project that help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like an amazing project, Alex. Um, and yeah, for all you listeners out there, maybe you're cleaning out your gear closets and you're finding a an older but still fully functional digital beacon, send it on over to the Avalanche or to the uh, South American Beacon Project, and uh, Alex will find a good home for it. The donations are are like extremely important. They're what runs the program, as I was saying. Um, but this is like very crucial for 20 plus communities in Chile and Argentina. Um, anyone from municipal workers, police officers to mountain rescue really need this. This is also a, 
a, a huge support. These outreach, these avalanche awareness talks are just incredibly important in getting folks out there, making them aware that they need to take a class, creating this culture of avalanche awareness in Chile and Argentina. And um, I don't know, there, it's, there's been so many people involved um, but it really is not without the beacons, not without the nation of teachers giving their time. Um, and it really, you know, the shift of awareness in South America over the past seven years in regards to avalanche education is huge. I mean, people, <laughs> people, one, they know what a beacon is. I mean, I just remember back in the day, I'd go to people and give them beacons, to teach them avalanche classes. And they tell me things like, um, yeah, yeah, great. Thank you, Gringa. We really appreciate it. But um, our avalanches only happen between 2 and 6 a.m., so there's no one here anyways. <laughs> Things like that. You know, you just hear the most outrageous stories of like of that source in regards to people's knowledge on avalanches. And, and it's just changed so dramatically. So, yeah. Alex, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, oh, that's so good. Uh definitely flying like no question about it i would want to fly yeah yeah i mean holding your breath underwater would be cool like teleporting would be cool but flying would be really cool right yeah what's your favorite ski run Ooh. <laughs> uh well probably something in las lanas argentina there's some pretty amazing ski runs out there mm-hmm. there's one that you're not supposed to like that i really enjoyed after, you know, realizing that I went in the wrong chute for a while. Sin Salida, that was a pretty good one. Chimenea in La Parva. Hmm, so many. Thanks, Alex. Well... We'll still have a couple more episodes for you this season, so make sure you are subscribed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're currently on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Player FM, CastBox, and Google Play. I hadn't even heard of some of these outlets, but I must be doing something right if they're showing up there. Send any feedback you have to me through the website www.theavalanchehour.com and while you're there, check out the store for a hat, stickers, or a can koozie to keep your 10-barrel beer cold this spring. May I suggest their trail beer, canned for your pleasure. All proceeds from the store through the end of April are being donated to protect our winters. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and 10-Barrel Brewing. Music today was performed by Grammatic, made possible through the permission of the artist. Man, I'm digging those beats. Check out more of their tracks at grammatic.net. That's G-R-A-M-A-T-I-K dot net. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. You to man, T. Next episode will air on May 1st. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. <laughs>